Folks, they've discontinued the obscenity warning for this show, but folks, this is John McWhorter, and I should say that for this particular episode on which I'm a guest, you might want to know that there is going to be a certain amount of what used to be called blue language. <clears throat> Three, two... This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. Good day to you, madam. And also to you. And Tablet Editor-at-Large Leah Leibowitz. Fishing for trout. Good day to you, sir. This week, we bring you returning Gentile of the Week, John McWhorter. Is this his three-peat? Is he, is he on his way to... Steve Martin, Alec Baldwin status? Like I That's a telebutic question, because technically I think his his repeat was us going on his podcast. So true. does that count for him? I don't know. It was broadcast no, on No, we our did it feed. at the same time. Did we? It was huh. one episode and we both aired it. <laughs> anyway, so that, that episode double. of course has driven so much traffic to our show. John McWhorter's podcast, Lexicon Valley, one of my favorite podcasts. Uh, all about language. But he's back as a Gentile. As a linguist, as a social commentator, who is going to speak with us about everything from his research on curse words to his love of Jewish languages to his thoughts on the contemporary Black Lives Matter moment. And always such a pleasure to have McWhorter here doing his Gentile thing. We also share an interview from a while back, but still relevant, with Shoshana Keats Jaskol, who speaks about the importance of supporting women in Orthodox Jewish spaces. Speaking of Orthodox spaces, Liel and Stephanie, you know where I was the past week? At the Western Wall? <laughs> Yeshiva Gedola Catskills. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Two good guesses, both wrong. I was in the Catskills, and there was a wall, but it was the wall of my in-law's little cabin in Sullivan County around Lake Louise Marie in the town of Rock Hill, where my family and I went on a week-long Scrabble and kayaking retreat. And getting out of the city to my in-law's place in the Catskills is I mean, it's great anyway because it's a nice little house and it's good to be away with my family. But the really exciting thing is, although the billboards are mostly taken down, usually when you drive up there, you see billboards for kosher restaurants, for some of the Catskills resorts that still persist. I mean, it's not far from Monticello and other kind of mainstays of old Jewish Catskills life. And there's something about going up there, even though I didn't grow up with Borscht Belt Judaism at all. There's something about the drive up there, about going up on 17 North and and just feeling like like Sid Caesar is whispering to you, like Phyllis Diller is there, like the tumblers around the pool. It's it's it feels like the promised land, even though it's not a land like unlike the real promised land where there's archaeological evidence that we were at least in some of it at some time. This is a promised land we we know some Jews were in, but we know I wasn't one of them. Like I was born in 1974 when that whole world was past its peak. And yet I went to the communal tennis courts that their little homeowners association helps keep up. And uh, we bumped into just a couple other families. And one of them was this like nice Jewish lady from Staten Island who had grown up on Staten Island, moved to Brooklyn. But when she and her wife had their kids, they moved back to Staten Island to be near their mom, to be near grandma, near, near Bubby. And she was like super Jewy. There was just something and her mom had like a big like Star of David around her neck. And you just feel the Judaism everywhere up there. You feel the cultural flavor. And I really, it makes me happy. Is that weird? Well, it's so funny that because when you first started talking about billboards and Monticello, I assume you're going to talk about like the current enclave of 
like ultra-Orthodox Jews. Right, who, like Hasidic who sort of, Jews going up there. Yeah, yeah. Sort of flee up there for the weekends and like a lot of minivans. I can make all sorts of stereotypes about the drive up to Monticello. Um, but what you're actually talking about is like the former promised land of the Borscht Belt, the Catskills. You know, there's this uh, photographer, Marissa Scheinfeld, and she did these amazing photos of all of these former resorts, which are basically like either, most of them like Grossinger's, you know, the ones you really, really have heard of are basically rubble. You know, like there's mm-hmm. ruins of a lot of them. And she went in and took these photographs of these like grand rooms with just like grass growing in the middle. And like it's there's something it's almost like when you see these old synagogues in Eastern Europe, when you tour them and you're like they're barely standing. And it's sort of the same thing in a lot of ways. Right. It's like this sort of this culture that has really just been somewhat eradicated. I mean, the idea of like the bungalow colonies, which was something that my father did, my mother-in-law did. Like that that's just not something I think that we we do anymore. Yep. But a little known fact, if you place a note in the cracks of one of these ruins, uh, the ghost of Patrick Swayze comes back. Well, wow. in fact, uh, Patrick Swayze's character was based on my father-in-law who found uh, a bride at Kutcher's. Now that's that actually true? not true. No, that's not true. Is the second half true? <laughs> no, but my father-in-law did used to go up to singles weekends at Kutcher's in the Catskills. It's not where he met my mother-in-law. I think he met her at a party back in the city. Uh, he lived on the Lower East Side. She lived in the Bronx. By the way, with this time when you say the city, it's correct because you mean New York City as opposed to I earlier when you city. referred to leaving the city of New Haven. <laughs> which don't actually think nobody, I didn't hear that. Which actually nobody in New Haven would ever say. We don't call ourselves the city. But he was he went to those weekends up there and people did. And it was a way to get out of the city that was cheaper than a lot of the Jersey Shore and a lot of Long Island was still inhospitable to Jews. And you got out and you got some fresh air. And you go drive up there and it's still like the temperature drops 10 degrees. There was a thunderstorm every afternoon at about four o'clock and Sid could feel it rolling in. She would say like about 356, she would say, bring in the towels. It's going to rain. It's like her Jewish sixth sense. Yeah. She remembers from her childhood being able to tell at the country house when it was going to rain. And this house is on a piece of land that my father-in-law bought like in the late 60s or early 70s as just a piece of land before he could afford to put a house on it. And it was just land for a long time. He's like, I want a little piece of the Catskills. And then sometime when my wife and her, her sister were very young, he built the little cabin. And there it is. And it's just it's just a beautiful like little piece of the American dream. It was just such a great week. I, I had such a nice time. I'm so happy now. Good for you. I'm so happy for you. How are you, Stephanie and Liel? You guys, I'm sad. Carl Reiner died just after we finished last week's episode. It's one of those things where it sucks that, you know, obviously Carl Reiner was so present. Like, he was always on Twitter. He was this, like, great liberal voice on Twitter, like, saying things that were so obvious and so much funnier because Carl Reiner was saying them. So he died last week at 98. And since then, I feel like I've been really doing like a retrospective. There's so much of his content, as we say now, that you can go back and watch. And something that I watched, I watched his episode of uh, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee with uh-huh. Jerry Seinfeld, where he lets Jerry come over for his like famous dinners he has with Mel Brooks. Every night Mel Brooks comes over for dinner and they eat like on actual TV trays and they watch you Jeopardy. Characters? No. No, what well, you do, Carl, you do. tell him what I do. You know, Mel, you have never seen him work in person. I've always seen... Why are you bothering? No, because... I will. No, you won't. Now I will. And you're like, this is the sweetest thing. And there's something so deeply human about that. Like these two wildly successful men who started from nothing, who came up together, who now are just like quite old, and they just hang out together every night. And, you know, he has this whole thing... um, if you're not in the obituary, eat breakfast. And that actually became a documentary that he put together where basically you hear from a lot of 
older people, just people in their 90s and over 100 about like what they do and what their life is like and how they sort of like stay active. And I don't know. I just I just have been really enjoying it. And you kind of wish that you could do that while someone was still alive. Well, you'd be prompted on by Netflix to like review Carl Reiner's career, but like not when he was dead. But this guy's career, I mean, this was a guy who created the Dick Van Dyke show, a great, great comedy. Uh, before that, he'd been a writer for Sid Caesar. You had so much success with Sid Caesar on your show of shows. Then you create the show, The Dick Van Dyke Show. I was being offered uh, situation comedies. I read a few of these, and they weren't very good. And my wife, in her infinite wisdom, said, why don't you write one? So one summer in Fire Island, I wrote a thing called Head of the Family. And Peter Lawford put up the money for me to do a pilot. And I said, oh, if I'm going to do a pilot, I better have some scripts. So that summer, in six weeks, I wrote 13 episodes. I did the pilot. And you were the star. I was the star. It was okay. It was just okay. And it didn't work. But my agent, Harry Kausheim, bless him, he couldn't stand the fact that with 13 episodes lying on his desk, gold, he could sell. He called me in. He got Sheldon Leonard and Danny Thomas. They said, we're interested in your show. And I said, I don't want to fail with the same material twice. And Sheldon said to me, you won't fail because we'll get a better actor to play you. He went on later in his career. He was probably already in his 50s or 60s. He starts making these comedy records with Mel Brooks, the 2,000-year-old man. He ends up in Ocean's 11 and 12 and 13, but I pretend those two don't exist, in the indispensable role of the old guy who, who ends up being one of the con artists they bring in, without whom Brad Pitt and George Clooney couldn't do their thing. What's with the orange? My doctor says I need vitamins. So why don't you take vitamins? You come here to give me a physical... And then, of course, he's Rob Reiner's dad. Like, without him, there's no When Harry Met Sally, right? I mean, it's it's just amazing. He never stopped being fruitful and productive and always seemed to be in good cheer uh, and just a life a life well lived. I hope the three of us are, like, having breakfast on TV trays in our 90s. 70 years from now. And so let me <laughs> let me make a request, if, if I may, rather than just bloviating about him, which I could do for a very long time because this is a man whose work I profoundly loved. Can we just play a little bit of the 2,000-year-old man? If you've never heard it before or heard of it but never actually took the time, you know, close the blinds, sit on the couch, turn on the air condition, enjoy. Could you give us the secret of your longevity? Well, the major thing, the major thing is that I never, ever touch fried food. (laughs) I I don't eat it, I wouldn't look at it, and I don't touch it. And and they uh, never run for a bus, there'll always be another. Even if if you're late from work, you know, I never run for a bus, I never ran, I just strolled jaunty, jolly, walking to the bus stop, you know? Yeah, well, there were no buses in the time of Iraq. No, in my time, I mean, I... I, What was the means of transportation then? Mostly fear. Fear transported you? Fear, yes. You would see an animal would, would growl, you would go two miles in a minute. But I suppose you had... Fear would be the main propulsion. Yes, but I think most people are interested in living a long and fruitful life as yes. you have. You mentioned... Fruit is good, too. You mentioned fruit. Yeah. Fruit it... kept me going for 140 years once when I was... I was on a very strict diet, mainly nectarines. I love that fruit. It's a half a peach, half a plum, but it's a hell of a fruit. I love it. Not too cold, not too hot, you know, just nice. What has been Even your... a rotten one is good. That's how much I love it. I'd rather eat a rotten nectarine than a fine plum. What do you think of that? By the way, the 2,000-year-old man is just like a very old Jewish man complaining. 
It is like <laughs> this foundational truth. It's amazing. It is absolutely that. But Liel, isn't it also true that he was in the Irgun and uh, actually was the first person to smuggle David Ben-Gurion into the old city? You laugh, but but here's the truth. The truth is, famously, the state of Israel offered Albert Einstein the honor of being the first president of modern day Israel. That was such a mistake. They should really have offered it to either Mel Brooks or Karl Reiner because then it would have been a truly <laughs> great Jewish nation. Not that it isn't right now, but just imagine. But maybe we should start watching like Mel Brooks stuff. I mean, the whole joke between them is that Mel Brooks is so much younger than Carl Reiner. <laughs> Not that much younger, but they, like he's the younger one. Um, so maybe we should do like a Mel Brooks appreciation, like each bring a thing to watch. I'm in. Leo, would you bring us some upbeat news of the Jews? I don't want to go out on that. Maybe from a hotly contested presidential state somewhere in the Midwest. Maybe something happened of, of great earth shattering importance this week. It sure did. This comes to us from the great state of Ohio and from the even greater establishment that is Little Caesars. Pizza, pizza. Which apparently uh, <laughs> people still go to for pizza. Uh, this is coming from like a Domino's lover. I'm not some, you know, New York snob right. or, or New Haven, God forbid, you know, a guy the who city. only goes to his, right, to his favorite place. But really, like, you have sunk so low that you go to Little Caesars. <laughs> pizza, pizza. One Ohio couple uh, did. And when they entered and ordered their pizza with pepperoni, which, of course, you know, <laughs> no kosher keeping, self-respecting Jew would do. They, I'm reading from CNN here, were shocked and disappointed when they opened their ready-made pizza to see pepperonis arranged in the shape of a swastika. Naturally. Oh, my God. So I have to say, this really actually troubles me very much. First of all, because, you know, I don't think you should ever open your Little Caesars pizza, pizza and pizza. find swastika. But but I'm even more troubled by the fact that the people who arranged the pepperonis did it in reverse. The swastika is backwards. Now, here's the thing, Mark and Stephanie. Nazis used to be Nazis, you know? They used to be known for, like, their sense of punctiliousness and Precision. Order, like, they were nothing if not precise. You could count on your Nazis to get everything <laughs> at least straight. Nazis today, man, Nazis today can't even get pepperoni on a pizza the right way. Nazis would not mess up your order. I will say, though, that I'm relieved to know that this was actually, in fact, a swastika, as opposed to, like, when I look at tile formations, I'm always like, there's a swastika there, there's a swastika there, and I, like, can't tell the person whose home I'm at that, like, their bathroom tile is full of swastikas. My sister just moved out of an apartment, and I could finally tell her that the bathroom, if you look closely at it, just has a big pattern of swastikas. You'd been sitting on that one for a long time. I've been sitting on the toilet on that one for a long time. <laughs> Friends, a Gentile this week, we originally reached out to the great John McWhorter a couple months ago after he dedicated an episode of his great podcast, Lexicon Valley, to talking about Yiddish. So we spoke with him in May, but then we wanted to reconnect with him this past week to hear how he's making sense of race relations in our country right now. So a two-parter. First, you're going to hear some McWhorter from back in May, and then you're going to hear some McWhorter from just a few days ago. Liel Leibowitz was present for both interviews. I was there for the first one, and Stephanie was able to join for the second. Enjoy. We're so thrilled to have back one of the all-time great Gentiles of the week. John McWhorter teaches linguistics at Columbia. He hosts the popular podcast Lexicon Valley, which did an amazing Brady Bunch crossover episode with us in 2017. It was episode 94 of Unorthodox. And I would say when we ask our listeners, how did you find us? 
One of the most common answers we hear is that they found us through Lexicon Valley. Is that true? I didn't know that. 100%. Okay, that's good. 100% as the Orthodox Jews say. <laughs> and it is really true. And it's and it's also very pleasing to us because we're huge fans. And that was a great episode. We obviously planted an idea in your mind because three years later, you just did an episode that starts off with a good riff on Yiddish. And uh, that, was, <laughs> that was great. So you are a sociolinguist and a teacher and well, are you a sociolinguist? Is that right? Not at all. No, you're not. It's not the kind of linguistics you do. Very reasonable podcast. to think so. Yeah, because I in apologize. the media, that's what I often am asked right. to do. But no, I am. That is not really my training. And keep this just between us. It's not really my interest. I mean, I am able to become interested <laughs> in anything if I have to be. But how language works in terms of how people feel about the way they talk has never been what I really did. But keep that between us. Okay, so that is actually a perfect kind of segue in, into our first question, which is this. I feel like every time people ask you to comment on stuff in the media, it is either about race or about language or the intersections of these two. Are you ever tired of that? Do you ever wish, like, guys, like, I actually want to talk about something completely different. Why doesn't anyone ever ask me about my you know, budding love for rugby or whatever. Well, to tell you the truth, the race stuff is a duty. And so, yeah, I get tired of being asked about it, but I want to be asked about it because I think that, you know, I have my quote unquote heterodox views on it. And for very understandable reasons, most black academics slash intellectuals, whatever, even if they feel the way I do, have a certain tacit sense that they don't want to share it with the public. And so if you're going to have the kind of view that I have, which I don't present as eccentric, I present it as representative of the way a lot of people feel over a glass of wine, then I kind of have to do it because there's something sick about me that I don't mind being yelled at. And these days, my views don't get me yelled at as much. On language, I'd like to be asked about language forever. Any linguist who's a public linguist, though, knows that you mostly get asked questions like, where does the word pandemic come from? Why did that black person <laughs> use that expression? Is it okay that that white person said this, etc.? That's what the public is interested in. And many public linguists are sociolinguists, and so that is what they do. I wanted to be an Indo-Europeanist when I was little. As you guys know, I think Yiddish is cool, etc. That's what I wake up thinking about. But that's not the general public, and so you learn that what you share with the public is different. But frankly, these days I get to share my fun stuff too, especially because of Lexicon Valley. But I don't feel like I'm being put into the little boxes that I used to. I mean, it should be said that to those of us who are super fans of Lexicon Valley, it's pretty clear that if Lexicon Valley ever ends its run with you, your next project is a podcast on the history of musical theater. It is. It's actually is it really? being talked about. Yeah. <laughs> I can't do Lexicon Valley forever. And you can tell what I really kind of wanted to be. And so that is actually what's going to happen. That field is less crowded than I thought I found out. It, it's, so, yeah. it's pretty uncrowded. So let's talk linguistics for just a moment. I don't care where the term pandemic came from, but Good. in this moment when all of us, including you, had to do some teaching online, in this moment when we're all doing all this Zoom stuff, what have you noticed? You're the first linguist of any kind we've had on since this all started. Are there any interesting tropes that are coming up? Any interesting words that are coming back? Any ways that it's changing how we talk that you've noticed? That is a very reasonable question. And at this point, there isn't a cute answer. The only one that I really have noticed is that already there's a new pet peeve, which is that everybody wants to call it Corona because that's a pretty word. 
And because nobody knows what a COVID is, and so we call it a corona. But that's technically wrong because coronavirus is many things, and this one is COVID-19. So there's already a certain kind of person who's saying, I don't like it when people say corona, because it's really COVID. And that's going to go on and on. It's going to be kind of like the difference between HIV and AIDS. And there is a difference, and it's important to understand. But now, the place of that is going to be taken by people who say, well, you know, technically, it's not corona. It really should be COVID, should it? I mean, what's up with that? We're going to hear that again and again for the next five <laughs> years. That is one thing that I've noticed, because everybody, including me, wants to call it corona. All right. So when last we talked about your work, I think you were looking to start the book on swearing. Where is that book? Are you, so you've done a couple episodes that have touched on that on the podcast. You can tell there are weeks when I'm lazy and I just, yeah, that <laughs> is, not, <laughs> it, it is that. not what I was implying. And I should also say that Liel is the connoisseur of obscenity on this show, maybe because he grew up in Israel and really came to English with a sort of, it was on a quest for new swear words. A playful, right. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that but, actually. Where's the research on that going? How far along is the book? And also, like, tell us some stuff about swearing that we're going to learn from the book when it comes out. That book is done because I get obsessive. And as soon as I heard anything in the news about schools closing, as soon as that discussion started in February, I thought, and I have a five-year-old and eight-year-old, I thought, ah, the schools are going to close. And because of the circumstances of my life, I thought I'm going to be home all the time with the kids. So as soon as that started happening, I very quickly finished the chapters on, if I may, faggot and bitch much more quickly than I would have. Because I thought there's going to come this Monday when suddenly I am at home with my children and I won't be able to concentrate. And that is exactly what happened. And so the bitch chapter was finished literally the day before that Sunday that they decreed because I thought I'll never be able to get anything written again. And so the book is done. I had to finish it a little faster than I wanted to, but it was fun. The stuff that you learn, like, did you know, and I assume all this doesn't need to be believed or anything. Oh, no. Fuck no. <laughs> Do you know cock can mean a vagina? That it used to be referred to that way. Like, you came out of my mommy's cock. And they meant <laughs> vagina. And I started noticing, wait a minute, this tends to be Southern. And so then I thought, well, okay, it must have been a black thing. Then you listen to old blues and people are always singing. If you listen to really dirty ones and I'm going to get into your cock and... My back is made of whale bones, and my cock is made of brass, and my fucking is made for working men's two dollars, bread garden round to kiss my ass. It's like, oh, wow. And then I thought, well, what about older black people? So last Christmas, I talked to some older black people who were my relatives, and I said, you know, Uncle Jerry, did you ever? And he said, oh, yeah. When I came up north, I had to learn that people only meant a man's part. That's the worst black accent I've ever done. Got the thing. But he said, yeah, I had to learn. You know, that it, it refers to the man's part because when I grew up, it meant, well, <laughs> pussy. So that was one thing that I learned from the book that just comes to my mind now. Don't even get me into a faggot. I mean, the things that you learn. So it's going to be a fun book full of stuff like that. My Mommy's Cock. <laughs> it's, that's it's the, the title, title right? Hi, welcome to Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. <laughs> Our That's guest today for. is the author of... You guys must have talked about that with the publisher. Like, how do you do Terry Gross with this book? You know how it's going to be? I actually... It's one of the most cynical books I've ever written because I thought, one, it's a hot topic, and two, because I've got this kind of corny Disney announcer voice, I thought, everybody's going to think it's funny to hear me say fuck. And I figured, no. well, with the audiobook, I'll be using <laughs> this voice and damn, fuck, cock, shit, bitch. That'll be considered funny. Okay, great. And then I thought, even in interviews, you know, stiff, cardigan-sweatered me, 
and I'm sitting there, and I have to use these <laughs> words. So part of the joy will be talking around them, and so you get the quote-unquote wit. But then the minute I say pussy, everybody thinks, well, I didn't know he thought of such things. And so then it sells the book. So, but it's going to be weird. And I'm, I'm thinking if there's an NPR interview, I'm going to have to be very careful. There will be bleeps. I would like the audiobook to be recorded by Gilbert Gottfried personally, but <laughs> oh, you're, you're a close second. <laughs> and so what's your, what's your dad position on swearing? So, you know, my kids, we don't flip our lids if they swear, but we discourage it. We, that's not couth. We try to give them a sense of what are home words, what are school words, and what are just words that if you want to use them with your friends with the door closed, that's fine, but please don't use them with us. And my wife and I don't swear much in front of the kids unless we stub our toe or something. But certainly I know parents who I think are terrific who say, you know what, what the fuck? Like they're going to grow up to swear. There's nothing inherently harmful about these words. Where do you and your wife come down on this? As far as I'm concerned, they're going to be doing it these days, you know, at like 12 when they're out of our earshot. You'd rather they do it under your roof? (laughs) With the alcohol. And the- <laughs> yeah. I curse around them all the time. If something falls on my foot, I yell out, fuck, right in front of them. And I find that we underestimate kids' ability to glean how these things work. You don't have to tell them that it's a bad word. Both of mine know that you don't run around saying shit and fuck. Yeah, I let them know, don't say that when I'm not around. Don't overdo it. But for this, this is an example. We were walking down the street about six months ago, and somebody had their windows down and playing really loud music. And I said, quite openly, I said, you know, he's an asshole. I know he thinks he's sharing his music, but he's a damn (laughs) asshole. And I said, it's like, da-da-da-da-da, asshole. And I made up this little song. The two of them (laughs) love that. They don't know that's from Green Acres, but they just think that's cute. They'd say that all the time. They whisper it if there's anybody around. They know not to do it. They only shout out the real thing when I'm around. So I think they get it. For me, profanity, and this is included in the book that's coming, profanity is the slurs. And if they ever uttered any of them, you know, N-word, etc., that would be a problem. But for me, those scatological words, day-to-day are punctuation, really. And so I figure just let them listen to them in use. And you know, they understand manners. You know, they don't pull their pants down. They don't say fuck outside. But they probably know more about that word than I did at their age. I don't mind that. You know, it's a different era than it used to be. That's that's evolution. It is. It is. That's how kids. Some get people smart. would say devolution, but it's just uh, that there's still profanity. It's just that it's different words. Is there something that's happening now that we are so attuned to language, and language has such huge political implications? Some of it for the better, a lot of it as you yourself have pointed out for the worse. Do you see a kind of weird change in the way we find creative, lewd ways of expressing ourselves, which human beings have always done? Are we just going to go back to like really crude and really offensive slurs because they represent some kind of, you know, great possibility of breaking the so-called political correctness? Or are we going to look in completely opposite or different or inspired directions to find dirty words. What it comes down to is that it is part of being a human being, at least in a hierarchical society. There are these right brain words, these words where, you know, language as we think of it is in the left brain, then there are these right brain things that are kind of yelps that just come out. Like if you say fuck, you're not thinking about what it means. You're not supposed to say it, and therefore it feels kind of therapeutic to say it. We always have those. And so a thousand years ago, that was saying something about God or Jesus. And you could use the scatological words all the time, and slurs were just funny. Then, in roughly the 1700s, it becomes shit, etc. It becomes things about the body that come out of your right brain as a kind of a way of blowing off steam. 
Now, we have lived through an era when really those words are now salty, but they're not what they were 50 years ago. And the thing that leaps out of you today is those words that, see, even I'm not saying here. That's our profanity. I don't feel like saying nigger or bitch right now. I did that in quotation marks. So those are the words that jump out of your right brain. Now, the question is, what will those words be in 100 years? when those are no longer considered profanity for one reason or another. And that would take a sci-fi creativity that I'm not sure I have, especially today. But there will be such words, the right brain words. Well, I feel that, you know, Liel's solution to that is he just... I know that, Liel, you didn't make up douche canoe or shit waffle, but yeah. you, you <laughs> or, have or a Or cock deep, sniff, which is my cock favorite. Sniff, right. But you have a deep, <laughs> deep reservoir of obscure, obscene portmanteaus and, portmanteaus. and nonce words and stuff. I, I think it's you, a Keynesian approach. To, <laughs> what to is a douche canoe? Or should I not ask? These are all just epithets Liel hurls at people. Oh, you just you know, say it. That, oh, okay. Yeah. It's, he just yeah. sees a, a liberal on the street. You know, f- fucking douche canoe. He just hurls it. He just... So we're just making them aside. Yeah. It's possible. Yeah. So how were you finding, how was this semester for you? Were you teaching this semester? Did you have yeah. to move stuff online? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> do you have any wisdom on that you can share with me who also <laughs> no. had to do that? You know, as soon as this hit, you know, after finishing the last book, the idea was we were supposed to teach on Zoom. And the idea is that, well, it's not like real life, but it'll do. And I don't know. To me, it will not do. I tried it a couple of times, and it was very nice to see the students' faces, but it just didn't work for me. And so I just made podcasts for the rest of the semester. I sent them recordings of me doing what I do, and I said, listen to it. And, you know, half of them are in China or Norway anyway. And so I figured, why get everybody together at one time? And so that's how I did it, unless I needed to talk to them about an exam or something like that. But to be honest, I know this is not in the spirit of our times to say this, but I loathed it utterly. And this business of long-distance teaching really doesn't work for me. I, sorry to strike this note, but for me, teaching is a performance in a room where I'm trying to connect with the students. And this, if this is the way it has to be, say, six months out of the year for the next five years, I quit. I warn the world I am about to retire early. So I coped. But no, I want the room. I need the room. I agree. If this holds no appeal for me as a as a profession of just of having distance learning, really, I mean, mm-hmm. there's a reason I never went to apply to be faculty at University of Phoenix or whatever. <laughs> there's a reason I'm not in the distance learning <laughs> business, such as if you can call it learning. Also, John, forgive me if if you cover this on on your your latest episode, but you are familiar, I hope, with a with a new Yiddish word, oisgesund. Ausgesund, gesund, like out healthed. What, what does that mean? Uh, out zoomed. Uh, oh, zoomed. Is, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't heard that. Oh, B- wow. By your sixth Zoom call of the day, you're oisgezoomed. You're oisgezoomed. I'm going to spread that around. Because, yes, aren't we also oisgezoomed? It's like three and four a day. Yeah, it's just. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Isn't it it's funny, crazy. though, that we're used to podcasting? I've been doing this now for four years, and you'd figure that we wouldn't mind teaching this way. But to me, classroom and this are completely different animals. And I don't want to do this to a bunch of people I'm supposed to be in a room with live. It's weird. Amen. So having done recently an episode, it's not the whole thing's not about Yiddish. It's about sort of blended languages, but you you do a good solid 20 minutes of Yiddish on a recent episode of Lexicon Valley. What got left on the cutting room floor? I mean, you, you clearly had thought a lot about Yiddish and I'm curious what appeals to you about as a language. Why did you choose that? Was it just because a lot of your audience is probably Jews or does it hold a special place for you as a linguist in thinking about what it is? Most of it was that there is a very vocal Jewish audience for Lexicon Valley and I'm not sure why 
but I'm glad because I, I get it. I feel it. By vocal, you mean pushy and obnoxious and always That's like exactly. shoving their I didn't want to say <laughs> it. But. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I never pay retail. We, we know the type. Right. <laughs> they want more free content. I understand. <laughs> no, actually, it's just that I would say probably one in six of the letters that I get is from somebody who identifies as Jewish and wants to know about Jewish issues. And so it always makes me think, okay, that. Also, I grew up around a lot of Jewish kids because I went to Montessori schools and Quaker schools. And in Philadelphia, that meant that every oh, other yeah. kid was going to be Jewish, at least back Quaker then. schools are where Episcopalians teach Jews. It was yeah, a Jewish right. school. Yeah, basically. What got left on the cutting room floor of that episode, though, was Ladino which is a very interesting case. And people often want me to do Ladino, but the show is going on too long and Ladino is maybe a little less graspable to many American listeners than Yiddish. And so I just kind of- Although its curses are incredible. Yes, yes, that is definitely true. There's a whole world of very juicy words. (laughs) Ladino swears. So I have a few recommendations for people who who want more McWhorter. I think people should listen to episode 84 of the podcast, The Fifth Column. Do you remember doing that episode? It was with Thomas Chatterton Williams and Camille. Oh, goodness, yes. And, that's right, yeah. And that was a fabulous episode. We're about to of, do another one of those. Yeah. That, that's an amazing podcast, and that was a great 90 minutes of you and, and some other black intellectuals. I like that. We're about to do it again because we're going to Zoom it. We don't need to be in the same place. And then also the forum in the recent Salma Gundy with Orlando Patterson, also just really good stuff. Daryl Pinkney, You're Orlando following Patterson. You. Well, I'd say yeah, I, I'm a fan, and my brother's a fan, and so between oh, the two good. of us, we catch a lot of we catch a lot of what you do. Good but tell us if people want more of you. When is the book coming out, and what would you send them to in the meantime to get more McWhorter in their lives? The book on cursing, which is probably going to be called Nine Nasty Words, that is out next May, maybe sooner, but next May is official. I think I'm going to get. The first edited version of that today, which is going to be interesting. And um, in terms of me until then, to be honest, Lexicon Valley is usually whatever was floating through my mind over those two weeks, and I kind of throw it together. That will be there, and I'm going to keep writing for The Atlantic. The virus crisis has kind of narrowed the focus to that so much that I haven't written as much for The Atlantic, because I only have so much to say about that, because I'm not an epidemiologist. But still, there will be that there. And we'll see. But yeah, Lexicon Valley is going to, I'm going to do that for at least another year. And that is the way to know that I'm alive, essentially. (laughs) Well, it is the great podcast for language nerds and musical theater nerds and Philadelphia nerds and (laughs) peach jello nerds, which is very weird of you. In refrigerator right now. Yep. Which is really very weird of you, but I love it. And uh, thank you so much for being a return Gentile of the Week, John. Of course. As we say in Yiddish, Alhamdulillah. <laughs> That's, That's not, what does that mean? Praise be to God in Arabic. <laughs> there's something wrong. There. But you know, Yiddish swallows up everything, John. I mean, so it's all these now, sounds right? that you can't hear. That's right. Thanks That's a right. lot, man. Of course. All right, take it easy. Hi, John. Welcome back to Unorthodox. Great to be back here. So you did a wonderful interview with Mark and Liel back in May, and in it you describe what you call the duty you feel to talk about race. Obviously, the weeks since that interview have brought with them massive social upheaval, the murder of George Floyd, subsequent protests. I don't need to tell you this. Everyone knows Mm -hmm. what's going on. We sort of wanted to bring you back on, and we're grateful for you giving us a little bit more of your time. Happy to be here. 
So between the pandemic and the protests, I mean, how, how are you doing? How's your family doing? What's going on? The family is, is fine. It's been an adventure having my two little girls with me so much of the time, but I have now got it covered how to fill vast amounts of time with just them when you can't go out to eat or go to a bookstore or something like that. So that has happened. But to tell you the truth, and I'm not just saying this to do a kind of a radio show transition, it's been really exhausting in that all of that has been happening while the news has turned upside down and in a way that a race commentator has to be part of. You know, I cannot just check out of all of this stuff. So it's been a really confusing and sometimes almost upsetting time in that. I've never done anything like it. It's it's gonna 2020 is gonna be one of my signature years in that way. <laughs> it's been hard. It's been really tough. Did you wish you could just completely log out of this? Are you kind of regretting life choices a little bit and saying, you know, I'm now a scholar of ancient Sanskrit. Don't bother me. I'm out. You know, that's literally it. I mean, I actually considered about six weeks ago, I was thinking this business of commenting on things going on in the news, I fell into it by accident. And there's so much of it now that I really was. I don't happen to be a Sanskrit specialist, but I really was thinking I was planning during this to teach myself more old English. I'm missing my books. And I was thinking it's at the point where I can't study because people keep asking me about George Floyd. And George Floyd is very important. But it really did get me to the point where I was thinking I used to be a scholar and I've been having a real existential crisis about that, especially since about April. Yeah, for real. We're calling you back. We're asking you more of your time. We obviously feel a bit guilty about that. Oh, I didn't mean that. No, no we're doing the thing. But I specifically wanted to ask you as a linguist about this idea of anti-racism that we're hearing mm -hmm. now. That seems to me, at least in my perspective, to be new to the broader conversation. Mm -hmm. Could you break that term down for us, what it means to be an anti-racist or why we're seeing things about anti-racism initiatives and training? It's a word whose meaning is shifting. Um, Martin Luther King would have called himself an anti-racist. That wasn't the term. But there's this new form of anti-racism in terms of conception, where the idea is not just that you sign up and become part of something, certainly not that you just express a philosophy, but that the idea is that whites need to undergo a certain kind of extensive psychological retraining in such a way that they let go of white supremacist ways of looking at things that they would never have thought of before. And so that kind of anti-racism is something relatively new. I think that in terms of the purchase it has on the public, this starts with ta Coates in about 2014. He wasn't an explicit adherent of this kind of thinking, although I started detecting it around then and wrote a piece in the Daily Beast about it. But now the white version is Robin D'Angelo in the book White Fragility, which I just had the misfortune of having to read. <laughs> and then the other one is Ibram Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist, Ibram is Black. So if you've got those two books, those are sort of manifestos for this new way of thinking about it, which which worries me because I think protest is great, but I feel like there's this idea that all whites need to undergo this kind of retraining in how they think that doesn't really have a whole lot to do with making sure George Floyd doesn't happen again. I get the feeling everybody's being encouraged to go through this kind of performance art, and I'm not sure what the connection is between that and what civil rights used to be. So that's another reason that these times are worrying me, because what we're being encouraged to do is not even what it would have been 10 years ago. The idea is that everybody needs to completely change their thinking. I don't think that's going to happen. So that's one problem I have lately. So let me throw you a softball then. How did we get here? 
It's partly social media, which allows us to talk to each other more. And it's partly that the old models of racial activism had started to be seen as a little tired. And so it needed a kind of a jump start. So just like you used to say prejudiced, and then you said racist, and then you said white supremacist, there have been kind of three waves. And the wave in which you could talk about white supremacy is the one we're in. And there's some people who feel like we need new tactics, but I just worry that the tactics might not get any poor people jobs. And I'm more pragmatist than I think a lot of these other people are. What would be a better language to speak about these affairs? What would be terms or words or attempts at conversation that we could have or introductions to conversations that we could have that would put us on more sturdy ground? If we really want to address problems that need to be resolved, but do it in a level-headed, you know, reality-based way. I don't know if language is the issue. It's hard to control how people talk. And people are going to keep saying white supremacy when what they really mean is racist because they want the room to listen. I do it for other reasons. And, you know, I can't control that. I just think that what people need to think of is what can we do to improve the lives of black people who need help? And different people are going to have a different set of things. But I think if people really think of it that way, they're going to find it difficult to imagine that what needs to happen is educated white people sitting in rooms testifying that they understand that they're privileged. That might be nice. I imagine it's kind of fun often, but it just doesn't have anything to do with helping people out on the ground. Martin Luther King would have had no idea what that meant. And so it's not so much what words we use, it's what we say we're going to do. And I think we need to be distracted from thinking that it's doing something to put your hand up in the air and testify that you understand what Ibram Kendi means. The idea is to get out on the ground and, and do stuff. And I don't think that the second thing is any harder than the first thing. And in many ways, it's easier. And it just has more of an effect, especially since we're at an inflection point in terms of who might be the president of the United States. That's important right now. Who knew four months ago that it was going to be at the point where you could imagine there actually being no Donald Trump? So we need to prepare. And preparing is not going to be a matter of sitting in corporate boardrooms feeling guilty. That's not what activism is. It will be more along the lines of creating jobs, say, of eliminating predatory payday loaning. and For example, Exactly. Yeah. Things that frankly don't sound as exciting as saying, I know I'm a racist, but that really matter. Cash bail, cash bail bonds, that has to stop. There are a bunch of things. You could narrow it down to about 10. And that's what we need to be doing. Not talking, but <laughs> that way we've talked enough. So I want to keep talking. Um, <laughs> I, want to, I want to talk about letters. I want to talk about acronyms. I think what happened, I think in mid-June, we started seeing, at least I started seeing for the first time, BIPOC. Black, Indigenous, People of Color, as opposed to POC, which is a shortening, an acronym for People of Color. How invested are you in those dialogues? Because, you know, then I read an article that said, actually, Indigenous people don't want to be lumped into that group because they have different struggles. But actually, BIPOC is a way for white people in particular to recognize the broader group of minorities. I mean, how do, how do we sort of parse these terms and, and how do we decide what we should be using to you know, refer to any group of people? Stephanie, to tell you the truth, if you're thinking about the New York Times article, what you saw in that article was that for a certain kind of person, what all of this is for is to provide a basis upon which one can argue and talk about racism. And I don't mean that that doesn't always make sense. Indigenous, I don't know what that is. That is many different groups of people who do not think of themselves as quote unquote Indians or Native Americans. And so why are you just going to have that I? But people of color, of course, there's certain people who are going to say, I feel left out of this, etc. Sometimes I think some people are just waiting for reasons to argue. But the BOPOC one, that one 
you know, I can't change these things. I really don't like it. I don't know what a person of color is. It seems to be a very vague category that I would feel vaguely insulted being put in. I get to have a special one because I'm B and so I'm black, but then I'm sure there are people who wish that it was IPOC or something because it's supposed to be African-American. Then you have to fight about that. Then you have to fight about whether black should be capitalized. I mean, last thing I knew, black was old fashioned and we were supposed to pretend that we were African-American people hundreds of years later. And so, you know, the argument keeps going. BIPOC is also awkward because one, POC, if you're not prepared for it, always looks like piece of crap. That's what it first looked like to me. And bi seems like it's about bisexuality. So it's like BIPOC. The first time I saw it a few months ago, I thought, oh, bisexual pox. And I didn't have time to think beyond it. I didn't know it was supposed to be about black. And Native Americans is indigenous. It sounds like the Natural History Museum. It's a clumsy one. And it also just isn't very pretty. BIPOC. Sounds like a disease. So I don't think that one is going to catch on. But, you know, no one's going to ask me my opinion. But no, I would say you guys don't use that. I think that's going to be a passing fashion. Go back to African-American. Go back to Latino. And when you feel it would be graceful, use Latinx, because there's some people who want you to do that. So, John, I noticed in your last interview, you were not given the chance that all Gentiles get to ask a Gentile of the week question. (laughs) And so now that we have you here, do you have a question for us? I do. If you are a Jewish American person, and you are immersed in the culture, then there's a certain multilingualism that I've always kind of envied. You know, with Black American culture, there's this dialect, but then people often don't want to admit that it exists, et cetera. Whereas for you, there's Hebrew school. And so you're going to have at least some kind of experience with that language, and you might taglit, you might learn it. Then there's this Yiddish thing. And you might not hear any of that, but especially if you're on this coast, you might. And so there's this Yiddish thing. What does Yiddish sound like in your ear if you grow up around that Hebrew? I imagine Hebrew always sounds kind of like this. That's what the Hebrew voice is for me. Correct. Liturgical. Correct. What what does Yiddish sound like? What is its its oral flavor? It sounds like a man trying to remove kasha from his beard while drinking (laughs) seltzer straight out of an old fashioned (laughs) siphon to me. It's that. You know, something we talked about when we did our crossover episode was this idea of like, I'll be by you, which is a yeah. thing that my, my mother-in-law says. She grew up in Brooklyn. She's like, oh, so we'll be by you in about an hour. And to me, that is like the most hilarious. Like, I love it. It's so it's so Hamish in a way, right? It's so like right. homey and charming. And it's this idea like we're going to be by them for Shabbos. Right. Now the voice I would say is my mother-in-law's voice. Um, is it a happy feeling? Yeah. It's, it's just like, we'll be by you soon. Like, it's loving and in a way that I think a lot of... These, these sort of like old-timey interactions felt like they were, right? Like you were in a shtetl somewhere. I mean, obviously it was not always lovely in the shtetl, but this yeah. idea like you were, it was very communal. Um, and so, yes, I hear that. I also, I do hear like the old Jewish Ashkenazi man, like maybe right. asking for kasha. Kasha, right. And look, I grew up with both, right? I grew up as a Hebrew speaker in a family that also still retained some of its connection nine generations back. And so had some Yiddish floating around. Hebrew is, you know, it's this it sounds like a star wars alien race like think about like for example shabbat you know that sounds like you're commanding a dog to sit right yeah now compare that to the yiddish shabbos it's like a mouthful of candy right it, it ends with a ah with a kind of like open-hearted open it's softer right which is why i find myself sometimes when i pray here i am ninth generation israeli hebrew speaker but i really like the malchus instead of malchut 
you know, because it just has a nicer, more kind of like, it's almost like upspeak. It's like malchus. Like, are we doing this? Do we believe? Yes, we do. <laughs> Yiddish speakers, the original vocal fry. <laughs> yes. So that's how it feels in you. I just always wondered. Fighting in the army versus eating gefilte fish. Yes. The army. Right. Ah, as opposed to. Ah. Yeah. Give, okay. Giving a command versus ordering lunch. <laughs> Second Avenue Deli. John McCorder, thank you so much. Thank you. And we will see you at the Second Avenue Deli. We'll soon buy you um, after all this <laughs> is over. Rabinus, yes. <laughs> Wonderful to be here. <laughs> the Great John McWhorter's podcast is Lexicon Valley. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Tell me, tell me in the day or the night, would it kill you to call or write? To the mailbox, Dear Unorthodox. Two letters all about our psychedelics episode from last week. Here's the first. Dear Unorthodox, the law in Amsterdam, or rather all of the Netherlands, about purchasing weed has changed since you were apparently doping it up over here. For about three years now, maybe more, you have to be a citizen or legal resident to buy at a coffee shop. So I wouldn't go planning that druggy trip anytime soon. 
yours, Devora Yanow. Well, Devora, thank you. Thank you for that. I had heard that. I had heard that now you need a local to score for you, but we know who to call. So if we're coming, if we're coming, next time we're coming to Amsterdam, we're going to check in with you first and you can have us well supplied. But now to a somewhat sterner letter. Dear Unorthodox, I'm a big fan of your show and therefore experienced extra disappointment when you made the irresponsible choice to promote hallucinogenic drugs. Except for a tiny reference to the study subject you went through screening before participating in the Johns Hopkins study, you have unfortunately ignored the possibility that artificially causing a dopaminergic surge in the brain, mimicking psychosis, could have adverse and possibly long-term effects. You had no scientific guest on to explain how these drugs affect the brain, or that people with a family history of schizophrenia are excluded from studies due to potential risks, or that recreational use of any drug can be dangerous, and therapeutic use of these drugs has not yet met standards for approval. Additionally, I believe in living your life as if you're an example for children, and promotion of hallucinogenics does not meet such criteria. I respectfully ask you to walk back from this topic and return to your usual outstanding content. Yours, RML, Pittsburgh. Thank you for being, sincerely, thank you for being a listener. We did say at the beginning of the episode that we were going to irresponsibly promote drug use, and that for people who weren't down with that, they might want to skip the episode. Nevertheless, if we were irresponsible, you'd still have a right to write in and complain. I'm not so with you there, and I want, I want to tell you why. And then I want to hear what Liel and Stephanie think as well. But my, my gut tells me, this goes back to when I used to joke that occasionally if I had some leftover Oxycontin or codeine, I would pop a pill just for fun. And I was taken to task for it because, of course, we're in the midst of this terrible opioid crisis, and I take that very seriously. But, you know, I think that anytime you talk about any substance that has addictive potential, there's a kind of implicit caveat that people who are addicted to it or potentially addicted to it shouldn't do it, but that other people possibly safely can. The great example being alcohol. I guess what I'm saying is I don't I don't see talking about drug use as different from talking about alcohol use, which can be enormously destructive and, and life-ending and life-destroying for alcoholics, but can be totally benign and pleasant for someone like me who doesn't have an addictive streak at all and has like one drink a week at most. And I, I guess... It seems to me that you're just being judgy about illegal drugs, but the same logic can apply to food or alcohol or anything that can be abused. So I, I don't know. But tell me, Stephanie and Liel, if I'm being overly cavalier. I don't think you are. And and here's what struck me also. In 2020, do you really need to say, well, before you talk about drugs, you need to have a disclaimer and a scientist on board to say that drugs are bad? Like. Not every conversation about every contentious subject needs to include the full gamut of scientifically available evidence. Like, we came at it from a very specific angle, uh, made all the possible disclaimers, and you're it's perfectly fine to hold all these reservations that RML clearly holds and still at the same time just enjoy this exploration of a different angle of a topic that is, you know, uncomfortable but still fascinating. I will say, particularly in the second segment, which is more about like the active use of these these uh, hallucinogens right now, and particularly in the Jewish context, those were all like very, very guided experiences with people who knew what was going on. And I mean, it seemed pretty clear to me that what Zach Kamenetz is trying to do, the rabbi in the Bay Area, is not just give people mushrooms when they walk into synagogue, but it's part of like this clinical model that he's using to just bring into a Jewish context. So to me, it felt very much like these were going to be very serious guided attempts at getting people to use these drugs. I mean, that it seems like there wouldn't be just like people getting mushrooms in synagogue. Like I think that was it was actually a much more rigorous program. Not that that wouldn't be awesome. <laughs> I mean, we'd finally see synagogue uh, attendance rise. Could you imagine? Can't do that. That on Zoom. 
<laughs> but seriously, thanks for writing. And if people have further thoughts on this, I think this is a real question. I think it's a real live question. And uh, I would love to to hear from more of the J Crew. Write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. Listeners of this podcast might know that some Orthodox newspapers don't show images of women at all. One Orthodox publication got widespread condemnation and had to apologize after they reported on bin Laden's capture in 2011, printing a photograph of President Obama's team monitoring the mission, with Hillary Clinton literally photoshopped out of the picture. That's probably the most prominent example, but it's not just famous women who are kept out of the photos. Today in Israel's more religious neighborhoods, women and girls' faces don't appear in newspapers, in advertisements, or even on health brochures. Shoshana Keats-Jaskol is out to change that. She founded Hochmat Nashim, an organization that, among other things, works to increase visual representation of women in Orthodox society. Don't worry, there's a link to Hochmat Nashim in the show notes so you do not have to figure out how to spell it. Liel sat down with her a few months ago to hear more about her work. And now, a special treat on a very brief visit from Israel here to the Unorthodox studio, Shoshana Keats-Jaskal, the founder of the amazing Chochmat Nashim. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Tell us about this marvelous organization. So our organization is Orthodox women who are unorthodox who actually really saw extremism creeping into their community. What do you mean by that? So women and girls are disappearing, not just are disappearing, but like pretty much have disappeared from the mainstream publications, from health clinic brochures, from bank posters, especially in Israel, and also in America. I saw a really funny, I think I saw it on your Facebook page. It was a wedding page in a a Haredi paper, and it was all this like mazel tov on the wedding of so-and-so, and it was just a bunch of dudes. Yeah, so it's actually ironic that what's happened by taking away the women and girls, we have created what looks like a either homosexual or pedophilic right. society, not that they're the same thing at all, but depending on the ad that you're talking about, it's either an older man with a younger boy or two men or two men with five boys representing a family because we've done away with the Jewish mother and the Jewish daughter, and now you have a society that like is the opposite of what they would want to reflect, which is so ironic. How did this happen? How did this happen? So, Sit back. Tell us everything. (laughs) So basically, it's actually kind of a new phenomenon, okay? So like 20 years ago, every paper, every Jewish paper, the Aguda, even the most like religious papers, except like the most, 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 most extreme in the smallest insular communities had women and girls. It was just a normal representation of Jewish life. And then what started to happen was that you wanted to sell more papers to like as many people as possible. So by starting to eliminate the women and the girls, you were able to sell to the more Haredi, to the more insular, to the more, to the point where now Ikea put out an entire catalog in Israel without any women or girls. Like I got an Ikea catalog with all that Herb and Schwergen stuff, <laughs> but there was just <laughs> men and boys representing this family. And it was like, okay, this is beyond. This is just too, too far. So I live in Bechemish. So I saw this six years ago. I saw this creeping up. My daughters were asked to sit in the back of the bus because what happens on a newspaper, when you see that represented as life, so then people start to take that as life. And my daughters were put in the back of the bus. Posters that did have girls and women were were torn down. And I, coming from Lakewood, New Jersey, where, you know, you had the most religious people and the most non-religious people, all Jewish, all getting along, all being able to be with one another, realize this isn't Judaism. This is extremism that's taking over Judaism. But I imagine that a person going through this process may, at some point or another, have this, you know, moment of doubt 
in which they say, you know what? Screw this. Right. If that's where it's going, I'm out. I'm taking off the headscarf. I'm ordering a ham and cheese sandwich. I want nothing more to do with this. D- did you have these moments or did you always know that the fight had to focus on kind of reclaiming the traditions that you loved? It's such a great question because for me, there's no question that this is not Judaism. I know and I'm blessed to have had an education where I know what is Jewish law and what is societal and cultural and extremist trends. Okay, so I'm in a position of, A, I'm not Haredi. I'm not Haredi. I'm religious. I'm Orthodox, but I'm not Haredi. I am not bound by a community that's going to erase me personally, except that now it's coming into the modern Orthodox world. Now it's in my house. Now the health clinics don't say breast cancer. They say cancer found among women. And they don't say cervical cancer. They say the women's disease. The women's disease? By the way, great name for a band. But (laughs) what are the the Hebrew terms for these? Um, so no Sartan Ashad anymore? No Sartan Ashad. It's the Machalat uh, Nashim, Sartan Nashim. Put it this way. I read it out to a group of women, and nobody understood from the terminology what we were talking about, and it was about cervical cancer. Right. So when you have health clinics that don't say the anatomically correct terms, when you have schools that don't talk about these things, when you have a culture that denies the fact that women's health is important, you literally have women dying. And so I'm, I'm going to answer your question, but I'm answering your question in a way that explains... I grew up on a Judaism where we were call Israel Arabim Zelazet. Like there was no option for it's your problem. It's not my problem. That's not what I grew up on. So when I see women and girls disappearing and it's coming into my house, when I see health clinics not saying breast cancer, and when Haredi women are calling me up and asking me to help them raise awareness of breast cancer because their neighbor died of a disease she didn't know she had. There is no such thing as walking away from me. I have a wonderful relationship with God. I found God on my own. I know it sounds like a movie Christian, but I did. I found God on my own in in my teens, and I love Judaism. And 95% of Judaism is stunning. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. It's values. It's Shabbat. It's Chagim. It's values and morals. And this 5% where people, you know, maybe chafes with modernity and people take it to extremes, I feel like that's my fight. Like, I'm fighting for something I believe in. I'm not going to walk away and let someone else take it over. Nobody else owns Judaism more than I own Judaism. So tell us about this fight. Tell us about okay. some of the things Chochmat Hashim has done and, and what are some of the biggest challenges still ahead okay. and how we could help. Thank you. Well, in Israel, it, it's interesting because there is the Israeli part that is slightly different because of the way that the religion and state is mixed together. And then there's the diaspora part. So what happened was I started to write about the things that I was seeing, the erasure of women, the extremism that was coming on. And Times of Israel had opened its platform. I started blogging. And what I found was it was resonating with people around the world. I was getting emails from New York, Argentina, South Africa, Australia, Manchester, who were saying, I see this in my community too. I'm worried about Judaism for my daughters. And so Chumat Nashim is another two women, Anne Gordon and Rachel Stomel, were together in this. We were writing a lot about what we saw. And it's not just enough to raise awareness. You have to say what it should be, right? Because you can quetch and complain about things and maybe not make such a difference. But when you say, this is what's happening, this is what the real halakha is, or this is what the real way it's supposed to be is, here's what you as a community can do in your community to fight this trend. So whether it's, let's say, a publication is starting to erase women and girls, do not advertise in it. Do not allow it into your home. Write letters. There was an ad right before I came to Israel from the Rockland County Cancer Center, which is a beautiful organization that helps people with cancer. But they put out a pamphlet that had lung cancer, colon cancer, colorectal cancer, whatever cancers, and then it said women's cancer. So all of the other cancers were okay to say, not breast, cervical, ovarian, just women's cancer. 
and the illustration next to it had a gorgeous three-level building. All men and boys. Not even one woman secretary. All men and boys. So one of our followers, at this point we have a nice following all around the world. One of our followers wrote to us saying, I just sent in an $18 check to the RCCC. And it said, this would be a $54 check if you had one woman on your pamphlet. Right. This would be a $100 check if you said the word <laughs> breast cancer. This would be a... Fa so what she's doing is speaking with her money. She's speaking with her voice. And she's letting people know that it, they are going to suffer from erasing women financially because what they're doing is damaging to the community. And every single one of us in the ways that we are, whether we're on a board, whether we're in a parent of a school. I have a mother. A mother contacted us saying they just took all the girls off the Instagram feed in my New Jersey co-ed school. Co-ed New Jersey Modern Orthodox School took all the girls off the Instagram feed without asking anyone. She's like, what do I say? How do I, how do I deal with this? I think the answer is take the boys off too and we're very happy. So <laughs> take everyone she, off Instagram. Right. So, yeah. so, so, so La, so La she went and she said to the principal, listen, I need to explain to you why this is dangerous. I need to explain to you what's happening in the greater context and why this is terrifying for me as a mother of daughters. I want them to have Jewish role models. I want them to grow up Jewish, but you're erasing them. And she got the girls put back on the Instagram feed. But this is a fight where if we don't take this up right now, we are going to lose because what's happened is the extremism. It's like it's like what you said. How did this happen, right? Because nobody, it's like the lobster in the hot water. I mean, find a kosher equivalent for that. But, but you know, he doesn't know what's happening until he's boiled up. Right. And so all of a sudden we're looking around and we're saying, what happened? Where are all the women and girls? Because no one stopped it beforehand. And now, I'm I imagine, shouting. I imagine that you also have the reverse kind of conversation, right, in which a secular, liberal, feminist, Jewish or not, would get in touch having read some of your stuff and say, of course, you know, religion by design is right. there to put you behind your mechitza. It's there to mm -hmm. restrict you. And hey, if you want real freedom, take off the thing on your head and come join us in the in the land of infinite opportunities. What do you say to that? So first of all, I don't want to leave the Jewish community. As I said, there's for me, it's 95% wonderful and 5% discomfort and, and having to fight. And I think people are afraid of discomfort. And I live in a constant state of discomfort. And I'm not talking just about heels, but more like... This feels weird to me. This doesn't jive with all of my other values. How can I make this work? I feel like that's the human job here in this world isn't to just be comfortable. It's to figure out how to make things better. It's how to say, listen, this is damaging. When women can't advertise, they're losing money. When women can't be seen and they don't know about breast cancer, they are dying. Who am I to walk away from this? You know, I was raised by my parents and by, by my survivor grandparents. And the one lesson I can tell you that I took from my survivor grandparents is that you can't be a bystander. That's not an option. It's just not an option. When people are being hurt, you don't walk away. I was a child when I heard these lessons, and I never really thought about it till I got older. But I feel like that's really kind of been who I've become in the sense of like, I don't know what it means to turn my back. And, you know, someone can say to me, well, does this make you suffer? Well, my son went into the army this week, and I wasn't there. My first son went into the army this week, and I wasn't there because I had had all of this planned when his date of use uh, of... Conscription. Thank you. And I said to my son, I'm, I'm going to push it off. I'm going to cancel it. And he looked at me and he said, don't you dare. Right. He said, I will be a soldier for the next three years. You have to go and do this. People need to hear what you're saying. Please. I fight my wars. You fight your wars. Basically. And I don't feel I can walk away. 
And now the fight comes to us in the form of a podcast as well. Yes, we have a podcast, a bi-weekly podcast. It's called Chochmat Nashim, and you can find it on Stitcher, iTunes, whatever. I don't know. Tell us a little bit about what the, maybe we should have asked this in the beginning. What does the phrase Chochmat Nashim mean to those of us who don't speak Hebrew? Chochmat Nashim literally means the wisdom of women, but it happens to be a phrase from the Torah, Chochmat Nashim Bantabeta, which means that the wisdom of women builds her home. And what's really awesome about this phrase is that my detractors like to say, well, why doesn't she just build her home and leave everybody else alone? And I'm like, this is my home. Right. How do you define your home? I just stay in my house all day. I, I, this is my community. This is my children's community. Like, I don't understand that mentality. So I don't really just, I don't bother with it. I don't, I don't really, I don't respond so much because our articles, our podcasts, our resources are literally taken by communities, Jewish communities all around the world. And when people ask me for help and when people say to me, your podcast is the reason I am still religious. Why? Because I was walking away. I was leaving it, like you said, walking away until I heard that there's another way to see orthodoxy. So when they tell me that our podcast is the reason we're so religious, it's because we're taking those things that people only up in the, in the higher leadership echelons talk about and we're bringing it to the community and saying, this isn't a mystery. This is yours too. And you can do with it as you see fit within this realm. Spell Chochmat Nashim so people could go and find that on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever. C-H-O-C-H-M-A-T. N-A-S-H-I-M. And other than the podcast, where else could our listeners go Facebook, to learn more? Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Times of Israel. You can Google me. <laughs> if you Google me, you'll find all of our articles talking about Agunot, conversion, the erasure of women. Be in touch with us. If you see this, if you want help, please. We have resources. We are here for you, and you are our community. Shoshana, God bless you, and thank you so much. Thank you so much. Mazel tov. Stephanie, do you have a mazel tov? We have a mazel tov for Noah Turim in Greater London. He's having a live-streamed Zoom Kiddush bar mitzvah July 18th. Uh, we shouted out his sister Naomi for her bat mitzvah back in 2018, and his mother did not want to be accused of favoritism on the eve of his bar mitzvah. So mazel tov, Noah. We can't wait to watch you. Um, I have mazel tovs for all the babies coming to congregation Beth El Kesser Israel in New Haven. Most recently, I, I was at my first Zoom bris. I'd been invited to one before, but I actually made it to this one. For baby Matthias Solomon, he is the new son of Jessica Bod and Tamara Schechter, our dear, dear friends from our neighborhood and from our shul. And it was a beautiful Zoom bris, a beautiful zis, as it were. Also, uh, shul members, the Cooper Stocks and the Cheskis Golds have new grandchildren and just babies everywhere and so much good fortune all around and I'm happy for everybody. Mazel tov, mazel tov, mazel tov. And finally, a couple mazel tovs to the Westchester branch of the production team. Sarah Fredman Ader passed her candidacy exams for her doctoral program and Liana Ader had a birthday this week. Mazel tov to both of you. Unorthodox brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. Subscribe to our newsletter bit.ly slash unorthodox podcast. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarah Fredman Ader. Our assistant editor is Robert Scaramuccia. Our artwork is by Kurt Hoffman while Esther Wardiger is out on leave. Our theme music is by Golem online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by the lay leaders of Congregation Beth Jacob in El Centro, California. And we come to you again from the scattered multi-site locations of tablet studios in the diaspora. Shalom, friends. 
Stephanie, are you okay if you are the last word here? Because you're probably more sensible than... That's what they call my MSNBC show. More sensible? The, the last, last word, word with Stephanie Buttony. I want to be called more sensible with Stephanie. <laughs>